Gresham College presents What Will Happen When Artificial Intelligence and the Internet Meet the Professions by Professor Richard Suskind and Professor Daniel Suskind. Here's what we'd like to do over the next 45 minutes or so and then have an opportunity for question and answer. Uh, Daniel will be talking about the two futures that we see for the professions and we'll be taking you to the leading edge, to the vanguard, to give you a flavour of what's already happening as a result of the application of technology in the professions. I'll come back and I'll talk about some broad trends that we see across the professions and suggest to you there's an evolutionary path along which the professions are evolving. I then also want to speak about technology, which will take me into artificial intelligence. That will raise the question, will we have any jobs in the future? Daniel's going to answer that question. And then say a little about different ways in which we might make expertise available in society. So without further ado, I hand you over to my co-author, Daniel, to take it from here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's also a great pleasure to be here uh, this evening. So I, I want to talk first about these two futures that we see for the professions. This is, this is the book, uh, and I suppose the most common question that we get asked is how we came to write the book together. And you know, what can I say about a, a co-author who in many ways has become like a father to me? Um, <laughs> now, as, as, you, as you would have heard in the introduction, um, uh, my dad has, has spent the past 25, 30 years trying to understand how technology affects the legal profession. And what he's found, particularly in the last few years, is that at the end of talking to audiences predominantly of lawyers, a stray teacher, a stray doctor, a stray architect would approach and say, look, what you're talking about, that's all very interesting, but actually, actually it applies equally well in our profession too. And when we first spoke about this back in 2010, and I was working in, in Downing Street at the time, working on lots of different policy areas, on tax policy, on health policy, on education policy, but with a good overview of lots of different professions. And it was clear then that significant change was in the air and that these professions appeared to face a common set of challenges. So we had this idea of joining forces uh, to investigate the professions more generally and that's exactly what we did and the result was the book, The Future of the Professions. So in the book we look at eight professions, uh, not just lawyers but also doctors, teachers, accountants, architects, engineers, consultants, journalists, uh, we even look at the clergy. Uh, but the, the thinking in the book isn't meant to just apply to those professions, though. It's meant to apply to, to all professions. In part, it draws on a set of around 100 interviews we did, both with traditional professionals, but also, again, um, those uh, people and institutions at the vanguard who are trying to solve these problems differently. And, and it draws on hundreds of sources, too. There's a lot of traditional print publication, but an awful lot, if you have a look at the footnotes of, of online material, too. The picture that we get is of radical change. And our work is trying to make sense of this change. And very broadly, what we see are two futures for the professions. Now, the first future, I think, is a reassuringly familiar one. It's, it's simply a more efficient version of what we have today. And here, professionals of all different stripes use technology, but essentially just to streamline and optimize the traditional ways in which they've worked. And this is the professions, in some cases, you know, since the middle of the 17th, 18th century. And as, as you look across the professions, there's lots of examples of this. It's doctors talking to patients via Skype. It's architects using computer-assisted design software to design bigger, more complicated buildings. It's tax accountants using tax computation software to do harder, more intractable calculations. So that's the first future. But there's then also a second future, and this is a very different proposition. And here, technology doesn't just streamline and optimize the traditional ways in which these professions have worked, but it actively displaces the work of traditional professionals. 
what we call in the book, and it's an idea we'll come back to again and again, increasingly capable systems and machines, either operating alone or, and this is quite important, just designed and operated by people that look quite unlike traditional professionals. They gradually take on more and more of the tasks and activities that we associate with traditional professionals. Now, the argument we develop in the book is that for now and in the medium term, we'll see these two futures develop, developing in parallel. And we're going to see examples of both. But we think that in the long run, that second future will dominate. That through technology, we'll find new and better ways of solving the sorts of problems that traditionally only a very particular type of professional has solved. And we argue this will lead to the dismantling of parts of those traditional professions. So that's, that's where the thinking and the, the evidence led us. But it also led us to ask a more fundamental question. It was this, and, and we opened the book with it. And it's why do we have these professions at all? Why do we have them? And the answer to that is that the professions, although from a distance they look quite different, actually in analogous ways, they're all a solution to the same problem. And the problem is this. It's that nobody has sufficient specialist knowledge to cope with all the daily challenges they face in life. There, nobody can know everything. Human beings have limited understanding of the world around them, and so we turn to professionals of all different types because they have the expertise that we need to make progress in life. So in what we call a print-based industrial society, the professions are the way that we solve these daily challenges. They have the knowledge, the wisdom, the know-how, the experience, the expertise. And our term for all of these things is they have the practical expertise. They've got this practical ability to solve these difficult problems that those they help do not. They operate under a grand bargain. And it's an arrangement that differs across jurisdictions and differs across professions. But it's an arrangement that essentially entitles the professions, often to the exclusion of others, to provide certain types of services, and they're entrusted to act as gatekeepers, each profession responsible for its own unique body of knowledge. So doctors look after medical knowledge, lawyers look after legal knowledge, accountants look after accounting knowledge, and so on. And so this is our analysis of the professions in this print-based industrial society, but we're no longer in a print-based industrial society. We're in what we call a technology-based internet society, and those traditional professions are creaking. They're unaffordable in the most people and most institutions simply don't have access to the expertise of first-rate professionals or, in many cases, any professionals. You know, they're antiquated. By and large, the professions, when you look at it, rely upon pretty old-fashioned ways of producing and sharing knowledge and information, despite the existence, in many cases, of, of feasible alternatives. They're opaque. Sometimes this is because the work the professions do is genuinely too complicated for ordinary people to understand, but other times... And, you know, take a, take a walk through a courtroom just down the road and have a look at the oak panelling and, and the wigs. You get the sense there's some intentional obfuscation uh, at work there, too. And finally, the professions underperform. And we mean something very particular by this. Given the way we organise expertise in society, in the heads of professionals or buried away in their filing cabinets and systems, the expertise of the very, very best, it's a very scarce resource. Only a privileged and a lucky few have access to it. And so we ask this question, as we move from this print-based society to an internet society, might there be new ways of organizing professional work? Might there be new ways to solve the sorts of problems that traditionally only the professions have solved? Do we necessarily need those traditional gatekeepers anymore? Now, to answer that question, we went to the vanguard, to a group of people and institutions, again, who were trying to do things differently, in the book, there's hundreds of case studies. Just now, I want to run through some of them just to give you a flavor of the sort of thing that we're talking about. So in education, 
More people signed up for Harvard's online courses in a single year than attended the actual university in its entire existence up until that point. Khan Academy, online collection of practice problems and instructional videos. Uh, I often direct my students towards it. It's a very high quality resource. It has 10 million unique users a month. That's more unique users than the entire school population of England. In medicine, WebMD, online collection of health websites, guidance on symptoms and treatments, it has 190 million unique users a month. That's more unique users than there are visits to all the traditional doctors working in the United States. The US Food and Drug Administration has said that by 2018, there'll be at least 1.5 billion people with one or more medical apps on their smartphone. DeepMind, it's a, a system that was developed, in fact, by a, a team of researchers here in London uh, at UCL, and it was designed to play the game Go, an incredibly complicated game, so complicated that most people in artificial intelligence thought until very recently we were about a decade away from ever building a system that could beat a human expert at Go. Now, in March of 2016, the system DeepMind sat down with Lee Sedol, who at the time was the world Go champion, the best living Go player, and it beat Lee Sedol four games to one. And it was a really remarkable, uh, it was live streamed on YouTube, but it was really remarkable. What's interesting, though, is that Google bought DeepMind shortly after, and Google, of course, didn't buy DeepMind for the fortune it did because it wants to be good at board games. You know, that's, not, that's not what they're doing. Uh, and one of the first things they did was they teamed up with Moorfields Eye Hospital, again, just down the road. Uh, and they're using this system, or a similar system, to try and diagnose various types of eye problems. In the world of journalism, Huffington Post, on its sixth birthday, had more unique monthly visitors than the New York Times, which then was about 164 years old. Associated Press, a few years ago, started to use algorithms to computerize the production of their earnings reports. So using these algorithms, they now produce about 15 times as many earnings reports as when they relied upon traditional financial journalists alone. In the legal world, on eBay, every single year, 60 million disputes arise. 60 million. And they're resolved online without any traditional lawyers using what's called an e-mediation platform. So just bear in mind, 60 million disputes. That is 40 times the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. 40 times. They're resolved on this one website without any traditional lawyers, 60 million of them. 52 million of them without any human mediation at all. Again, in the US, it said the best-known legal brand isn't a traditional law firm anymore. It's LegalZoom.com, an online document drafting and legal advice platform. Just a few weeks ago, JP Morgan, again in law, they announced the, uh, their use of some software called COIN, Contract Intelligence, and it, it scans commercial loan agreements. It reads and interprets them. It does... In a couple of seconds, what would have taken human lawyers, it's estimated, up to 360,000 hours of work. In the world of tax, a few years ago, 48 million Americans, 2014, used online tax preparation software rather than a traditional tax accountant to help them. IBM Watson. Uh, Watson is a supercomputer owned by IBM, and we'll talk about it a little more later. In 2011, it went on a, a US quiz show, Jeopardy! Uh, and beat the two best living human Jeopardy champions. Just have that in the back of your mind. The point about it is, though, again, IBM haven't developed the system to play TV shows. They've teamed up again in the world of tax with H&R Block, which is an automated tax preparation system in the US to engage with people as they complete their tax returns. It also, uh, in Japan, for Coco Mutual Life Insurance Company, have started to use the system to computerize uh, the decisions made around premium payouts. Uh, very interesting. In the world of audit, 
The traditional way in which we do an audit, we want to look into the financial health of a company, but there's too many financial transactions to review them all. You know, we simply can't do it. And what we've developed over hundreds of years is a method by which we take a sample, so a small number of those financial transactions. We have various methods for trying to ensure that the sample we take is in some sense a good picture of the rest of the transactions, that there's too many of them so we can't view them. And then we extrapolate. We generalize from this small sample, and if this small sample looks okay, then we say uh, that the broader population of data must also be okay, and so the financial health of this company is, is fine. That's the general approach, sample and extrapolate. That's no longer the approach, though, that some of the big accounting companies are taking, and so this system, Halo at PwC, the intention is to use all financial transactions, not just take a small sample of them, but run algorithms through the entire population of data that's available. In the world of architecture, Gramazia and Collar, a Dutch firm, used a swarm of autonomous flying robots to build this structure out of 1,500 bricks. Again, it's interesting, a Dutch firm, webuildhomes.nl. It's, in fact, a website. And uh, architects go on, onto this website, and out of what are essentially digital Lego blocks, they build buildings. And then people who are looking for a home can go onto this site, sift through the buildings, choose one they like, and it gets delivered to them. Very different way of thinking about architecture and construction. A few months ago, a new concert hall opened in Hamburg. Uh, it's got 10,000 acoustic panels in it, and it was designed entirely algorithmically. So what, what they did was they specified a set of design criteria. We want it to have these acoustic properties. We want it to use these materials. We want it to uh, seat this many people, even very specific things like if there was a panel within reach of somebody in the audience, it had to have a particular texture. And it took these design criteria and generated a set of possible buildings, uh, and the architects could then choose them, the sort of thing that might traditionally have required a designer or an architect to do. In the world of consulting, Accenture, a consulting firm, doesn't just employ consultants anymore. It has 750 hospital nurses on its staff. McKinsey, a consulting firm, doesn't just offer traditional face-to-face, one-to-one, consultative advisory consulting services where you sit down with a human being. Now they have 12 pre-packaged, off-the-shelf data analytics bundles uh, that they install at their clients. Very different way of offering the expertise of a consultant. And I said, we looked at Divinity in the book, and, and this is, I think, my favorite example. It is from Divinity. In, in 2011, the Catholic Church issued the first ever digital imprimatur. Now, a an imprimator is the official license granted by the Catholic Church to religious texts. And it granted it to this app called Confession, which helps you prepare for confession. So it's got various tools for tracking sin. And it has a... <laughs> it's got drop-down panels of options for contrition. And I, I encourage you to have a Google, actually, because it was incredibly controversial at the time. The issuing of imprimators in the Catholic Church is decentralized. And a church somewhere in North America, I don't know where it was, issued an imprimatur for this app. It caused such a stir that the Vatican itself had to scamper and release an announcement saying that, look, while you're allowed to use this app to prepare for confession, please remember that it's no substitute for the real thing. Um, that's a flavor of the sort of thing that we're trying to make sense of. And I'll hand over to my dad to take it from here. So we try to identify trends across the professions in light of this research. We won't detain you with all of these this evening, but we identified eight broad patterns and 30 trends. And one of them 
which actually dominates the professional services world, what we call the more for less challenge. The will you be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, or architect? The pressures are very clear today that there's an expectation you deliver more legal service or more medical service at lower cost. So this cost pressure, absolutely prevalent across the profession. New competition, uh, often from startups and technology businesses who are providing new solutions to old problems. A move away from what we call the bespoke service, the handcrafted approach, the finely honed, tailored offering of the traditional craftsperson towards a, a more, and I'll say more about this in a second, a more commoditized service. A move also towards decomposition, the breaking down of complex work of professionals into sub-parts, sub-components, and finding the most efficient way of doing some of these components. And then the routinization, this drive towards identifying, and this makes good sense, areas of professional work that frankly can be done again and again in a broadly similar way. We don't need the craftsman, the craftsperson on all occasions to start with the blank canvas. And we have another way of putting this, and it's in terms of the evolution of professional service. If you start with this notion, in the beginning, professionals are craftspeople. Then you see, across the professions, the introduction of standardization, standard methods in terms of process and substance of doing the same work again and again. Then you see the systematization, the application of technology. And this is still within the professions, within firms, within schools, within hospitals. And then there's the phenomenon that we call the externalization. As the internet has become widely available, it's been possible to make professional content, guidance, documents, materials online, and that is done broadly in three ways. You can do it online on a chargeable basis, so we've already seen examples of professional firms that charge for their online products. You can do it on a non-chargeable basis, and you'll find governments and educational establishments and charities making content and advice and documents available online. But you can also do it in the spirit of Wikipedia, of open source software. It's a kind of shared resource that neither the state nor the market owns and controls. And we call this movement from left to right, from craft towards the different forms of externalization, we call that the commoditization of professional service. You might call it the industrialization. You might call it the digitization. Basically, we're seeing in the professions what we've seen in so many other sectors identification of aspects of work that can be done, that's routine, that can be done either in a standardized or systematized or in an online way. So technology underpins all of this. And I want to take you back to 1996, and it's interesting just reflecting, it was only four years after that that I had the, the privilege of becoming uh, a Gresham Professor of Law. And I was speaking a lot at the time about a book I'd written then called The Future of Law. And in The Future of Law, I made what I'm sure you will agree is a bold claim. I said that in the future, the dominant way that lawyers and clients would come to communicate would be by email, okay? So it doesn't sound like an exceptional pronouncement. At the time, I joke not, the Law Society of England and Wales said I should not be allowed to speak in public, <laughs> and that I was bringing the legal profession into dis disrepute by suggesting the email would be widely used. And I say that today because we'll be talking about a whole bundle of technologies over the next few minutes. And your inclination might be, well, I'm not really sure they'll work in the professions. They're all far more likely than email was for lawyers in 1996. And we think the best way of understanding what's happening in the world of technology, and there's many ways of explaining it, but our ways of explaining the world of technology is under four headings. And I'm going to say quite a bit about two of them. But the four headings that the underpinning technology is growing at an exponential and explosive pace. 
our systems, as Daniel said, uh, are becoming increasingly capable, able to do more and more often tasks that we thought only human beings could take on. And I'll say no more about these just now, but our systems are becoming increasingly pervasive, not just handheld machines and tablets, but also the internet of things, microchips embedded in everyday objects, even embedded in human beings. And also, as we know, as human beings, we're increasingly connected through social media, for example, in different ways. But let's say a little bit of exponential growth, and not a law of the land, Moore's law, and there's many ways of describing this, but Gordon Moore, a man who 52 years ago, said something that doesn't sound particularly exceptional. He said every couple of years, the processing power of computers would double, very approximately, that's what he said. Now, that doesn't sound such a big deal, but I want you to think about the story of the tramp and the princess. The tramp saves the princess's life. The king says to the tramp, by way of reward, I will give you anything in the kingdom. And the tramp responds, and it turns out this is a mathematically astute tramp. The tramp says, I want something quite simple. I'd like a chessboard, and I'd like you to put a grain of rice in the first square, double it in the second square to two, double it again, or just keep on doubling right around the 64 squares and that will be sufficient as my reward. The king thinks he's gotten away lightly, but the king clearly is not mathematically astute because it turns out this would require more rice than exists on planet Earth. That's what happens when you keep doubling any <coughs> phenomenon. And what we're seeing is a doubling in processing power. So that by 2020, there's fairly widespread agreement that the, the machines are able to process an average desktop machine at the speed of about 10 to the 16th or 10 to the 17th calculations per second. That's about the same processing power as the human brain. Not to say it's artificial intelligence, just to give you a sense of the processing power. What's remarkable is that if Moore's law continues, and there is some discussion here, but most material scientists and computer scientists believe in one way or another there'll be a doubling of processing power every couple of years to 2050. By 2050, this means the average desktop machine will have more processing power than all of humanity put together. Now, this sounds terribly improbable, but we live in improbable times. We live at a time of greater and more rapid technological progress than humanity has ever witnessed. And we ask the professions whether or not we can reasonably believe this won't affect the way we work when you have this sort of processing power available to our children and our grandchildren. Am I exaggerating, you might ask? Well, look at this quotation. And clearly, the machine doesn't like this quotation. But this is by a Nobel Prize winner, Michael Spence. Uh, who noted in 2001, and this comes to the same thing as a doubling in processing power, he noticed essentially a halving in the cost of processing power every couple of years. He, a roughly a 10 billion times reduction, 10 billion times reduction in the cost of processing power in the first 50 years of the computer age. And remember that was 2001, so 2003 would be 20 billion, 2005, 40 billion and so forth. And for those of you who are cynical, just think about this. We find this remarkable. The little card you fit in your camera. 2005, a good card, 128 megabytes. 2014, less than 10 years later, 128 gigabytes. More than a thousand-fold increase in less than 10 years. That's more than a doubling each year. Whether it be bandwidth, random access memory, hard disk capacity, external storage, processing power, the amount of data flying about, we're seeing this exponential explosive effect. And this is enabling our systems to become increasingly capable. And we look at four different dimensions to this, and we'll say a little bit each. The whole idea of big data, predictive analytics, machine learning, we've heard all these phrases. But the, the underpinning idea here is quite simple, that if you've got lots of data, and we create so much data, even in a simple web search by any of us, there's lots of data created as a byproduct. But this data, the data exhaust, as it were, that comes flying out behind us, if we analyze this using appropriate technologies, it itself can yield insights, patterns, correlations. So consider Lex Machina, 
a system now owned by a business called LexisNexis, but originally developed in Stanford. And this system, it is claimed, uh, can predict the outcome of patent disputes more accurately than many lawyers. It knows nothing about patent law. It's making a statistical prediction about the behaviour of the courts. It's got over 100,000 records of individual cases, who the judge was, what courtroom it was in, the law firm involved, the lawyer involved, the party involved, the size of the claim, the nature of the claim. It turns out if you have enough information about the past features of cases, you can make a more accurate prediction than lawyers doing their legal reasoning and legal problem solving. Now, many people say, well, hang on a second, the system knows nothing about the law. And that's true. But just ask yourself for a second, if any of you or any business is about to be involved with litigation, what's the question we all ask? What's the chances of winning? Everyone asks that question. You may remember the great Abraham Maslow once said, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Or if you're a lawyer, everything looks like a legal problem. So when people hear the question from a chief executive, what's our chance of winning? The lawyer thing, that's a legal question. In fact, it's a question about statistics. It's about, about likelihood. And machines are starting to outperform human beings. And we're seeing it in medicine as well. So data science in many years, not many years rather, Many people are predicting, well, Trump medical science will be able to make more accurate predictions on the basis of past data. And then we have, as Daniel said, examples of what are called QA systems, question and answer systems, machines that can actually answer questions. IBM's Watson won that on this TV quiz show, beat the two best ever human Jeopardy champions. That's the name of the quiz game, by the same degree of difficulty as Mastermind. That was in 2011. So you've got this idea that machines from huge amounts of data can identify patterns, correlations, even come up with insights. We heard about the AlphaGo system, uh, DeepMind, uh, uh, come up with new moves that no human being had ever thought of, and then systems that can actually have stores of knowledge represented within them, as well as elements of big data, uh, and actually are outperforming in answering questions more accurately and more rapidly than the best human beings. This technology is amazing, effective computing. Machines that can recognize detect and express human emotions. A machine that can look at any of your faces and tell whether or not you're happy, surprised, angry or disgusted. A machine more accurately than any human being can now look at a human smile and tell whether or not it's fake or genuine. And then of course we have driverless cars. Not many years ago, leading labor economists were saying this was unimaginable. This would never happen. And now we're seeing most advanced economies expecting by the mid-20s this will dominate uh, the driving of trucks and cars on the road. So we're moving at a remarkable rate. What I find most interesting when you consider these four factors together is there's no finishing line. No one in Silicon Valley is dusting their hands off and saying, that's enough, job done. Let's just call it a day. Come on, enough's enough. No one is saying enough is enough. Enough, enough is, is not in their language. The rate of change itself is accelerating. And this takes us to the world of artificial intelligence, which is a nostalgic journey for me, because in the 80s, I wrote my doctorate in Oxford in AI and law. I was involved in the first wave of, of these systems, and from 86 to 88, developed the world's first commercial AI system in law. It looked like this. I know it's embarrassing now, but that's what it looked like. And it was a system that was loaded on... This was when floppy disks genuinely were floppy, ladies and gentlemen. It solved this problem. Section 2 of this act shall not apply to an action to which this section applies. Someone somewhere at some stage thought that was okay as a piece of guidance to humanity. A piece of legislation, very complicated, I won't trouble you with its details, but really to do with when an action in law can no longer be raised because too much time has passed. It's called the law of limitation. And we essentially, I sat down with a man called Philip Capper, who was the, the leading expert in this area, and he'd written the leading book in the area, and we developed a big decision tree 
of his expertise in this area. And, and there's a whole sort of very basic questions a user was asked, but essentially you were being guided through over two million possible paths in this very complex area of law. And the system in the end, he would say still to this day, was better than him. It could more accurately and more rapidly tell you the date after which your action was stale, more accurately than the leading human expert. Reduce research time from hours to minutes. We weren't alone in the 80s. People in law were working alongside people in medicine, and tax and audit and consulting. Everyone engaged in a certain form of AI, which was really to get a machine to do something clever, you put together a clever representation of a human being's knowledge and you put it into a computer system and you make it available. So this, the power of the system was to make the, the clever model available. Uh, we're moved on for that and that's the second wave, two seconds from now. These systems were costly to develop, not huge incentives, at that time, there, weren't, there wasn't the more for less challenge in the legal world. Clients weren't clamoring for lower fees. Competitors weren't undercutting firms. Why would they want to reduce their time from hours to minutes when they were charging by the hour? But what actually probably killed AI in the professions was the web. It came along and immediately we had a more intuitive, easier, less expensive way to make legal guidance, legal content available at no cost. Then something remarkable happened in 97. Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, was beaten by Deep Blue. In the 80s, we thought that would never happen. Because remember how we thought you got a computer system to perform at a high level was to essentially draw a big decision tree of an expert, or an expert's reasoning, put it into a computer system. But here's the problem. Leading chess players, leading doctors and others say, well, I don't know where my ideas come from. Uh, doctors will say it's just experience, it's intuition when I look at a disorder or hear some symptoms. And a chess player would say, I, 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 I can't articulate the rules I follow. So there seemed to be some realm of tacit knowledge, ineffable knowledge that couldn't be articulated. Happy conclusion in the 80s for AI. Okay, so what the computer systems is, they do the, the basic rule processing, where we can reduce expertise to a set of rules, we can pop that into a system. But the real magic, the insight, the expertise, the genius, must come from human beings. No system could provide that. What we hadn't banked on was this exponential increase in processing power. By the time Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue, this was a system that could process more than 330 million moves in one second. A good chess player with a following win can only juggle about 100 moves in his or her head at one time. Kasparov was not beaten by an artificially intelligent system that had genius or insight like a human being. He was beaten by brute processing power, lots of data, and clever algorithms. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what will take over in combination much of the work of professions. It's key to notice here that there are lots of ways of being smart that aren't smart like us. Patrick Winston, one of the fathers of academic AI, wrote to us, this, it's a great quotation. We tend to think as human beings, and we call this the AI fallacy. It, it, we make the mistaken assumption that the only way we can develop systems that perform the tasks, that form tasks at the level experts are higher, is to replicate the thinking process of human specialists. So many doctors and lawyers and accountants say, well, you don't really understand. Uh, a machine can't think, and I think, and that's how we sort out a problem. Uh, that assumes that the way you make machines perform at a high level now is simply by replicating the way human beings perform, and that's a fallacy. So the, the professionals say to me, what about judgment? How can a computer system ever exercise judgment? That's why my clients come to me. And we say in response, actually, there's two better questions. Firstly, to what problem is judgment the solution? Why do people come to human experts in the first place? Daniel's explained they're after this practical expertise. They need this expertise usually because there's conditions of uncertainty. 
facts in law, for example, facts are uncertain, the law is uncertain. In your experience, in your judgment, what's the situation? So the question is not can a computer exercise judgment, because judgment is the way that human beings answer problems of uncertainty. The better question is can a computer handle uncertainty? And all the experience in the world of, of um, big data and predictive analytics and machine learning is actually machines are better than human beings at handling uncertainty insofar as they can contain and process massive amounts of past experience. And we saw that with Lex Machina. Can machines think? It's a great question. We love it. We're both trained in philosophy. It's a red herring, though. Machines are outperforming human beings without being conscious or having cognitive states. We love this story. When Watson beat the two human champions in Jeopardy on that TV quiz show, the next day, a great philosopher called John Searle in the Wall Street Journal wrote an article that was headed this, Watson doesn't know what won in Jeopardy. Isn't that brilliant? Watson didn't want to phone up its mum to say how it felt, didn't want to go down to the pub to celebrate. Watson didn't want to do anything. Watson is a non-thinking machine. And what we're seeing is the emergence of increasingly capable non-thinking machines that are outperforming us. And that is the second wave of AI. And it has profound implications for jobs in the future. One of, the, one of the difficulties we have when we think about the future of work and we think about the future of jobs is that actually the term jobs is quite misleading. Uh, and it's, it's misleading because it encourages us, remember go back to that idea of decomposition before, it encourages us to think of the work that people do as monolithic, indivisible lumps of stuff. When actually, when you look under the bonnet of any job, if you look at what anyone does, they perform lots of different tasks lots of different activities. So why does this matter for thinking about the future of work? When we, when we published the book, The Economist wrote a, a review of it. Um, and I should say it was a good review, otherwise I wouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, and, but alongside it was this great cartoon of Professor Dr. Robot QC. Now, there's a sense when we're of that jobs mindset that the way technology affects work is that one day somebody will turn up at work and find Professor Dr. Robot QC sitting at their desk. You know, their job will have been taken by a robot. And I mean, that just simply isn't how technology affects the work that people do. What it does is it changes the types of tasks and activities that people do, sometimes giving them new tasks, sometimes automating away tasks. And so we think in the medium run, the challenge here isn't one of unemployment. Instead, it's one of redeployment. It's a story about how the tasks and activities that are required, that have to be done to solve the sorts of problems that traditionally were only done by a very particular type of professional, that those tasks and activities are going to change. And, and in the book, we look at 12 of these. Um, can't go into them in, in depth now, but just let me make two observations. The first is that when many professionals look at this list, these sorts of things, aren't, they don't see it as being part of their job. Now, this isn't what is in a traditional professional job description. The second point is that actually many of these tasks and activities require skills and capabilities quite unlike the sorts of things that we train many traditional professionals to do. So I think both those things beg the question whether or not traditional professionals will be best placed to perform many of these tasks and activities in the future. So we think, you know, in thinking about the future of professional work, the people really have two strategies if they want to be in this world. One is you either try and compete with the machines, so you try and do the sorts of things that at the moment people rather than machines 
a best place to do. And, and there still are large areas of human activity where that is the case. Many creative tasks, many things that require interpersonal skills, uh, and so on. Or the second strategy is that you instead become the sort of person that's capable of building and designing and, and operating these systems and machines. Now, of the two strategies, the latter, I think, is the more uh, appetizing one. I think if, we, if you're asking uh, what's going to happen in the future as these systems and machines become more capable, well, one thing is that they're going to be able to perform more types of tasks and activities. So that set of things in which people can effectively compete with machines, it's only going to get narrower and narrower and narrower over time. Let me say something about expertise. When we, when we began the book, our main preoccupation was with the work of traditional professionals. We wanted to know what was happening to the work of doctors and lawyers and teachers and accountants and so on. But actually, as our thinking progressed, we realized there was a far more fundamental question that we had to answer, and it was this, which is, how is it that we produce and share this practical expertise in society, this ability to solve these difficult problems? Now, it's very clear the traditional answer to this has been through the professions. When we have certain types of problems, when we have these challenges, we go to professionals and they have the practical expertise that we don't. What's happening, I think, as we move from a print-based society to an internet society is that we're seeing the emergence of new models, new ways of producing and sharing practical expertise, new ways of getting access to that ability to solve these difficult problems. Let me just give you a flavor of each of these. The first is the networked experts model. This is perhaps closest to the traditional professional model. Still experts, but rather than congregating in a physical bricks and mortar institution, instead they use online platforms to work in a far more flexible, far more ad hoc way. The economist called this workers on tap. Then there's the paraprofessional model. Think of this as a professional firm with lots of uh, inexpert people at the bottom and a fewer expert people at the top. Um, the, the traditional conception that many people have of these systems and machines is that they eat away at the stuff at the bottom of that pyramid, or the inexpert stuff at the bottom. But actually, there's a very different model. Uh, so this is the logo for that system I described right at the start, the AlphaGo system which is uh, the DeepMind system, which has been used, uh, which has been developed for uh, more fields, it's entirely conceivable that in the future, when you go to a hospital, you'll be greeted by a nurse or a nurse practitioner rather than a doctor, who, with one of these very sophisticated diagnostic systems, is able to offer the sort of support that might have required a more expert person in the past, but they're also off able to offer, for example, the sort of empathetic support that now, if we're frank, actually, a lot of experts traditionally lack. Um, and this, this challenge, I think, that actually one of the ways technology might change work is by allowing less expert people to do work that might have had to be done by more expert people in the past, I think, is, is an interesting model that we're seeing uh, developing in various settings. The third is the knowledge engineering model. This is what my dad was doing in the 1980s, engineering a system out of the expertise of experts and, and making it available for non-experts to use. There's the communities of experience model. We're all familiar with social communities, things like uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. We're familiar with professional online communities, something like Sermo, which is a network for doctors to share their experience. What's quite interesting is the emergence of what we call communities of experience, communities of recipients, patients, clients, uh, students coming together online without any traditional professionals to share their expertise with each other. So patients like me, it's an online collection of 350,000 patients coming together to share 
what treatments work for them, how they cope with different symptoms. Still producing and sharing expertise, uh, but a very, very different model, and one that doesn't resolve, uh, revolve around traditional professionals. The embedded knowledge model. Uh, the best way of thinking about this is uh, the game Solitaire. Now, if you played this game 15 years ago with a deck of cards, and you tried to put a red five on a red six, what would happen? Well, you could do it, but it would be called cheating. I don't know why you'd do it. Now what happens if you play it on your phone and try and put a red five on a red six? The red five whips back from where it came. The rules are embedded in the system. And it's an inevitable consequence as more and more of our lives become digitized, as more and more of our uh, activity is digitized, that the rules, the expertise, will be embedded in those systems, in the infrastructure that we interact with, rather than having a human being interject at all these various stages. Nice example, playing golf last year and, and drove past a sign that said, caution, children playing. The car slowed down. It wasn't possible to go above a certain speed. The rules, the expertise, the rules of the road were embedded in the system. And we'll see that becoming more and more commonplace. And finally, and this is the one that I think you see a lot in popular commentary in the future of work, there's the machine-generated model. Systems, AI systems that both produce and share expertise seemingly without much human uh, involvement at all. And while that is part of the story and it will become more of a story in the future, it's important to remember, I think, that the story is, is more diverse than that and that the models for producing and sharing expertise that technology is allowing us to develop aren't, aren't simply that, that final case. So what should you actually do, having heard all of this? This is something that uh, many young professionals, but also many existing, existing professionals ask. And I think this is what you shouldn't do, which is hope you can hold out until retirement before any of this stuff engulfs you. Um, I think that's a mistake. We live at a really remarkable time of technological change. And I think for traditional professionals and traditional providers of all these different types of practical expertise, I think the future can be a very exciting one if you're agnostic about the particular ways in which you solve these problems. If you're of the mindset that the only way to solve a legal problem or solve a medical problem or solve an accounting problem is to do it the way that your parents or grandparents did it, I think that's quite a, uh, I think that's, I think the sort of things that I've been describing are quite challenging. But if instead, again, you're open-minded and agnostic, then I think, I think it's an exciting one. The second thing to say is that a lot of what we've said today has been from the standpoint of providers talking about lawyers and doctors and teachers and accountants. And actually, from the point of view of recipients of professional work, uh, I think the sort of things that we're describing, uh, again, can be very exciting. You know, remember, just go right back to the start, those traditional professions are creaking. And if through technology we can find new ways to make the sorts of expertise that's, for many people, been inaffordable and inaccessible in the past, if we can find new ways to make it more affordable and more accessible, then I think, again, uh, I think that's another reason to be optimistic and excited about these changes. So we will finish there. Uh, thank you very much for uh, listening to us, and we look forward to taking some questions. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.